Is it working? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Smooth operator. Okay. Um, <laughs> now this morning, we're going to continue looking at the book of Acts. We've been looking at that uh, during the season of Easter, from Easter as we make our way to Pentecost. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at Acts 9. And just as a kind of reminder that Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the story of the risen Christ who calls and gathers his church by his spirit through his people. And so as we look at Jesus gathering his church, we've been especially looking at these passages in Acts to ask, what is that community like? What is it like when Jesus gathers a people in his name? And a couple of weeks ago when we first started, we saw that Peter gave the first sermon in Acts and we saw that the church is a community formed by the proclamation of the gospel. And then after that, a couple of Sundays ago, we saw the church in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, that the church prayed. They prayed for boldness, and they prayed for the renewal and the healing of their neighbors. And we saw that, and the church is a community marked by prayer. And then last Sunday, we looked at a couple of passages. We saw Barnabas sell part of his family estate to take care of the church and its needs. And we also saw the church in, in, in trying to care for the people amongst their community, especially the, the vulnerable, they appointed deacons, deacons to help lead them in generosity and to be marked as a community of generosity. And this morning, though, we're going to continue around that question, what is this new community like? What is Jesus gathering us and calling us to be as his people? And we'll look at Acts 9. This is a passage that might be familiar to some of you. It's the story of Saul coming to faith on the Damascus Road, becoming Paul, the apostle. But as we look at this story, what I really want us to focus on especially is Jesus' question to Saul and then an Ananias welcome of Saul. And as we look at Jesus' question and we look at Ananias' greeting to Saul, we'll see that the church is called to be a community of radical welcome, that we are called to be a church of radical welcome. So let's look at our passage. This is Acts 9, verse 1 through 19. You can follow in your order of worship or in your Bible. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And the house of Judas look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings 
and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you that you gather us here, and we thank you for your word. And we come and we confess that we desperately need to hear from you. We desperately need your spirit to meet us and minister to us. For Lord, we come with a variety of questions, a variety of experiences, a variety of things happening in our life, but we know that we need you to meet us, to lift us up, to bind our hearts. And we ask that you'd meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm sure you saw our passage starts by talking about Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, that he has arranged things with the chief priest and got letters so he can go to Damascus and search out for people who are following Jesus, following the way, he might arrest them. Before we look at his violent campaign, it's worth us noting that there are Christians in Damascus. There are Christians in Damascus. Now you might say, what's the big deal about that? But here we are in Acts chapter 9. It's not been that long since Jesus' resurrection, since the coming of the Spirit, In this short time, the gospel has gone out beyond Jerusalem. Damascus is about 140 miles from Jerusalem, and we learn that there is a Christian community in this city. The Way was one of the early names of the Christian faith. It's a term that Jesus used for himself. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And the way has spread, and churches have been planted in ever-widening geographic circles, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and we see now in Damascus that those who have heard and are following Christ. As the gospel spreads and the risen Jesus gathers his church, one major source of trouble and opposition is Saul. And we know from Acts that Saul was involved in at least one Christian being put to death. Stephen, one of the first deacons, was stoned. In the opening of our passage, we see Saul's eagerness or his aggression He's willing to travel over 100 miles, 140 miles. He's willing to go through the paperwork, whatever was involved back in those days of getting letters from the chief priests for the synagogues. He is actively seeking out how to bring about the arrest of those who claim Jesus as the Messiah. In his campaign, this activity is an expression of religious violence. And in this Saul's violence, we can acknowledge and condemn it. As we hear later, Ananias calls it himself, he says it's evil. And we know in our culture from the present day, but also the past, individuals and movements that justify violence, justify harm to others on the basis of religion. And our passage invites us for a moment to acknowledge that and to say that it's evil before God. And thinking about this, I came across that in Britain, they have a commission for the countering of extremism. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I I was reading about some of that, and one of the advisors made an interesting comment that was important, as we think in our day, to not equate strong religious belief with extremism. That it's possible to have strong religious convictions and not be categorized as a fundamentalist or extremist. And that Britain was committed 
to seeing that extremism wasn't seen in that light, but rather extremism is better understood as a way of behavior, a way of behaving, not a way of believing. I don't know what you think about that, but I thought it was an interesting thought, and it makes us see then Saul's violent behavior, Saul's violent actions here are described as breathing threats and breathing murder. But as he approaches Damascus, his violent campaign is interrupted. And Luke, the author of Acts, describes that interruption in two ways. One, suddenly a light from heaven shone around Saul, and he falls to the ground. And the second, Saul hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who are you? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. As we move through our sermon, I want us to see two times that Saul is addressed. One here where Jesus asks him a question, and then later when Ananias calls him brother. And as we see these two addresses towards Saul, we were invited to think about the radical welcome of the gospel and the radical welcome the church is to express. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To start here with Jesus addressing Saul, he asks him a question. And after Saul asks who he is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Do you notice this? In this exchange, Jesus does not say, why are you persecuting my members? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting those people that I have an interest in? Rather, he says, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus and you are persecuting me. Me. Somehow these men and women Saul were dragging off to prison were Jesus' people, his family, his own extended self. And so when Jesus interrupts Saul in his violent campaign, we are encountering language of union, language that declares a strong, unbreakable link between Jesus and his church. To keep saying it and repeating it, the persecution of the church equals persecution of Jesus. There's a number of observations around that interesting statement that Jesus makes. A number of things we could talk about that union. But this morning, I want us to see how that union speaks of the profound way that Jesus welcomes us, receives us. One of the passages in the New Testament that's always been meaningful to me is in 1 Peter 2, verse 10, where Peter's explaining the effects of the gospel. What is the gospel? And he says that at one time, you were not a people but now you're the people of God. One time you were alone, had no one who claimed you, but now you are God's people. That is a summary of the gospel, the summary of this idea of union. In the gospel, we do not stand alone. Think about this. We're not on our own simply with our resources or simply to stand before God or others on our, with our failures our regrets, our sins. But the gospel says that now you are in Christ and therefore you do not stand alone, but you are part of God's family. We are members of God's household, adopted children of God in Christ. And this description in the gospel is a transition of positions, a changing of position. Once we were alone, separated, an orphan on our own, guilty, But now we have a new position in Christ. The gospel proclaims that you are now accepted in faith in Christ, that you are received, that you are connected to God, that you are forgiven. And all of that transition, that change of location, that change of position 
is summarized as that you are united to Christ, that you are in Christ, that you are one with Christ. The author John Murray writes that the union with Christ is the central truth of the doctrine of salvation. That in Christ, by faith, we die with Him, we rise with Him, we're seated in heaven with Him, and that God makes a promise that when God sees us, He sees Christ and Christ's righteousness. I probably don't need to say this, but it's worth us being reminded that the gospel not only announces this change of position, this transition, but it makes clear that this transition is not based on what you and I do. It's not based on our finding our way into Christ. It's not based on our performance in the past or what we promise to do in the future. And that's why it's secure. Because it's not based in you or me. It's based in God's pursuit of us in Christ, us being found by Christ, us being welcomed and brought in by Christ. In Christ, God welcomes sinners. And because of this image of union, because of this union is so important that one of the images of the faith, one of the images of our faith is this table behind me, the table. You can think about a family meal, gathering around a feast and finding a spice for everybody. I don't know about you, but I remember many family meals and celebrations that there would be an adult table and like a children's table. And it was a big deal if you made it from one spot to the other, you know, um, the table of Christ is different. There's not levels. There's not the adult section and like the section that's making its way to the adult section, the majors and the minors. You know, There's one table. And on that table, it's not a potluck. We don't bring what we're going to have for the food. We don't somehow meet Christ and provide and make sure there's enough. We have a spot at the table through faith. And the food has been provided by Christ and it is living bread and living water that will feed us. And there is not different tables, different levels, but there is one table for all who are in Christ. There's a seat even for the little ones, even for the weak ones. And therefore, it is an image that Christ gives us as fundamental to the faith. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? I invite us to remember in those, that question to Saul, remember Jesus coming and being united to us. And therefore, no matter our circumstances, no matter where you find yourself today, no matter your struggle, the promise of Christ is this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Not one of my sheep will be lost. That when you put our, when you put our faith in Christ, he rece- it is received and we are sealed to Christ now and forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. This is the promise. Now Saul who later, when he's writing in the New Testament, will say that he is the worst of sinners, that he is the chief of sinners, that he persecuted the church, that Jesus interrupts him to welcome him to his table, to give him a seat at the feast that God has set. And so a light from heaven shone around Saul, and falling to the ground, he hears a voice. Afterwards, Saul finds that he is blinded, that, so his companions lead him to Damascus. Let's think for a moment of that image. Surely, He anticipated a very different arrival in this place. He planned to contact local authorities to act with power to arrest the followers of Jesus. But now Saul is unable to find his own way. He is dependent upon being led by others. He's blind and spiritually shaken. And as he arrives, our passage turns to Ananias, a follower of Jesus living in Damascus. 
And the Lord says to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarshish named Saul, for behold, he is praying. I want us to see that the story of of Saul's conversion obviously is a stunning story. It's it's a moving story of, of faith, how God can change a life. But within that narrative that is, is well known, there is another model, another image of the converted life, the life formed by Christ, and that's Ananias. Ananias. That in the face of fear and uncertainty, he obediently offers a welcome to Saul. In this story, we may miss and forget Ananias. We never hear of Ananias again. We don't know how he became a follower of Jesus. We know nothing about him except these verses. But we do know that God sends Ananias to the man who had vowed to arrest and to eradicate the followers of Jesus. Go to him. I came across this post the other day that was titled, Horror Stories for Shy People. It caught my eye. I've been called shy before. Horror Stories for Shy People, and as you looked through it, there was kind of these drawings of books, imaginary books, and the first one, the title was The Knock at the Door, with a subtitle of Who Is It? <laughs> There's another, the next book was titled I'll Just Drop By Sometime, Then <laughs> with a picture of someone opening the door and saying, anybody home? The third one was called The Milling Hour, a picture of networking happening, someone asking, so what do you do? And the fourth one, which maybe is the best, was titled, Karaoke, Anyone? (laughs) Now, I don't know how those horror stories for shy people strike you, if you relate or don't. I definitely relate to some of those. Those things can bring real anxiety or fears. Maybe you can relate, or maybe not. But I mentioned that to think about what does produce fear in us. What produces anxiety? And because we know the story of Saul, we know the story of Paul, his being the apostle, we might miss, we might dismiss the significance of what God was saying to Ananias. The significance of the fear. Go and see the person who stoned Stephen. Go to the person who was coming to arrest you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore it makes sense that Ananias would offer a word of protest and say, wait, wait, I, I have heard about this man from many I've heard about the evil that he has done in Jerusalem and what he's planning to do here. Ananias voices this reluctance, basically asking, should we really welcome such a person? Should we really welcome such a man? Maybe in that moment we can see Ananias' fear and even think for ourselves about neighbors or coworkers or people that we interact with, that we would wonder, is that person really someone to welcome? Is that someone who would really be welcome here? Someone that God is actually interested in? Well, God tells Ananias, go, for this one is my chosen instrument. In the face of uncertainty, but in obedience to God, Ananias goes. He departs and he enters the house and he greets Saul. And you see what he says to him from the beginning. He greets him as brother. Brother. If we want to one word, one moment of the gospel, what the gospel does, how it unites us to God and unites us to one another. Here's this picture. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has sent me. He welcomes him. He lays hands on him and calls him brother. As an agent of Christ whom Saul was persecuting, 
Ananias offers Saul welcome. Ananias is Saul's first Christian friend, his first Christian brother. Think of the welcome in the church that we can offer to one another. Think that God invites us and tells us to greet each other in his name, to call each other sister or brother, family, child of God. And this welcome is a blessing to Saul, but it's also a blessing to Ananias and to the church in Damascus. For it is a moment to remind them of the welcome, the radical welcome of Christ, that even Saul can know and experience the grace of God, and that grace is sufficient for him. Well, the story of Saul goes on, and, and this one who's called by Jesus, the one who was welcomed by Ananias, the one who's baptized in Christ, Saul the persecutor becomes Paul the apostle. And Paul the apostle becomes the champion of the welcome of Christ to the nations. He becomes the champion of the welcome of Christ to all people. It's worth us acknowledging that Saul doesn't just switch sides. He doesn't just continue with his violence and his evil actions. He doesn't bully oppressive actions, but rather is invited in a new way because Jesus has called him to follow him. Later, Paul will write in 2 Corinthians that he witnessed the glory of God in the face of Jesus, that Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the king, not only the Jews, but king of the world. And therefore, he begins to order his life and his ways, seeking to serve even the lowest. In his life and ministry, we see this welcome, the champion of the welcome of Christ. He proclaims good news to the nations, even to the Gentiles, even to the pagans. Through faith, they can be fully received and become brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a significant reason because of this welcome that Paul faced persecution and suffering and ultimately was put to death. I recently read a story about a Bible that's on display in the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. I have not been to that museum, but there is a story I read that they had a Bible on display, a relatively very rare Bible from the 1800s that was used by British missionaries to try to convert African slaves. The unique thing about this Bible is that they removed sections of the Scripture's Old New Testament, any section that they would deem that might encourage slaves to seek their liberation. And so there was about 90% removed from the Old Testament, about 50% removed from the New Testament. And so it's a stunning, stunning thing. And I print that to you, that here are missionaries, here is a Bible that was offered to invite people to know Christ, but not to invite them to be brothers and sisters. To invite them to know Christ, but not to know the liberation and freedom of that Christ. And in Paul's own life, in Galatians, he comes upon a time where the apostle Peter decided not to sit with Gentile Christians anymore at the table because he didn't think it was right for him to sit with Gentiles. And Paul says he confronted him to his face because it wasn't just social bad manners, but it was a denial of the gospel of Christ. A denial that these men in and women were brothers and sisters just like Peter. So this moment of we hear Saul's conversion is a chance for us, again, to think about the radical welcome of Christ. Our neighbors are invited to go Christ, and they're invited to be our brothers and sisters. It's possible in our world and understandable in our city 
at times to allow fears, real or imagined, to determine how we see another person, to determine our openness to others, to determine our welcome. But in Christ, we are asked to be men and women of welcome. In Christ, we are to believe in his grace, that his grace goes so deep that all those we interact with are not called not only to have faith in him, but to be our brothers and sisters. And so I pray that we would know that welcome of Christ, that we would know it ourselves, and that we would extend it not only to one another in this room, but to all those that we interact with today and throughout the week. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would meet us here by your spirit, that we'd hear it, and that you would move us to faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.